Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast on ecology today, inspired by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who coined the term deep ecology. This episode on knowledge features two guests who have dedicated their life's work to enabling marginalized communities protect their own resilience and integrating people's knowledge into bioregional development. But first you will hear a few words from RJ Rastogi at the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature in India. RJ works closely with the women of Mashkali village in Uttarakhand, India, in the foothills of the Himalayas. He set up the Vrikshalaya Center to be a meeting place and knowledge hub for the villages and other communities in the Himalayan lowlands, as well as foreign visitors and homestay guests interested in experiencing more meaningful forms of sustainability. We then hear from Nadia Bagamini, who works at Bioversity International. Nadia also lives on and runs an organic biodynamic farm with her husband in the countryside outside Rome. At Biodiversity International, Nadia collaborates with the Satoyama Initiative, helping communities all over the world develop strategies to strengthen their social and ecological resilience and maintain the diversity of the landscape's agroecosystems, species and varieties. You will then hear from Ritu Sugani, women's rights activist who is working on strengthening and evolving cultural and biological diversity in the remote areas of the Himalayas and other parts of India. Ritu has addressed the International Women's Earth and Climate Summit in New York as one of the 100 women global leaders from across the world. I'm Ajay and I'm calling in from Uttarakhand state. I have been a colleague of Ritu for last seven, eight years. We have worked with the local small farmers here. And we are aware of the beautiful work of Nadia at the Bioversity International. There is so much in the natural world that we are forgetting on a daily basis. The interconnectedness of the species and the knowledge systems within a landscape is something that's getting diminished every minute, if we can say. Close to 80% of all crop, all food diversity is on the brink of extinction. Having said that, it's a hope that is provided by the work of Nadia and of people like Ritu who work at the policy level as well as at the grassroots level. The food cultures, the fibers for our making our house, for making our uh, everyday life uh, things are also getting lost. The big question is, are we only thinking of biodiversity as food or are we thinking of it as a celebration of life? Each seed is life. Somehow the work that we used to do with our own hands is considered a bit undignified at the moment. And that's why the connection of the consumers with where the things are produced is getting longer and longer. And there is a certain level of disconnect. That disconnect is not just about 
the value of the food, the nutrition of the food, but it's also a disconnect about how the small farmers survive. What do they need? What is the kind of systems that we need to put in place in those landscapes so that the diversity could continue to flourish? With the climate change, there is a lot under challenge. Although the world is waking up at large to address the issue of climate change, but it is the resilience of the knowledge systems that we have for thousands of years developed in particular landscapes. Those species, those varieties of crops which have survived this thousands of years of evolution in the particular landscapes, they are the ones which will really be the resilient uh, species. And Dhritu's work and also Nadia's work speaks of that, volumes about it, in their experimentation as well as in how the knowledge is being generated. The beauty in their work is about experiential learning. It's something which has evolved and is done on the soil by hands together with the farming community. Often the argument is made that the lands are so fragmented and so small that the farming which can be supported in those lands will not be either viable for the livelihoods of the small farmers and at the same time will not meet the scale that the growing human population needs to meet its food demands. However, it seems very unlikely because what we have seen that when we grow diversity in smallholders, farmers, fields, there is much more energy production that takes place and much more diversity of food sources that we get out of it. Even now, although we may be claiming that the food culture has converted to industrial supplies and larger value chains of concentration where the food is processed and provided to the urban consumers through supermarkets, even there, if we see where is the production coming from, we find that more than 70% of the production is still dominated by small producers, which is being put together and processed. And then we feel that the scale has been achieved. One of the farmers once mentioned to me, and I have never forgotten that sentence. He said, whosoever the person may be, even the president of India, let us say, but he still has to eat three meals a day. And that three meals I provide. So that is the level of respect that the small farmer deserves from all of us. Hello, my name is Nadia Bergamini and I work as a research specialist for Biodiversity International in Rome. Biodiversity International is a global research for development organization and it is part of the consultative group on international agricultural research. And this group is the partnership of 15 different research centers that work for a food secure future. 
These 15 centers collaborate with uh, hundreds of partners across the whole globe. Biversity International's vision is to have agricultural biodiversity that nourishes people and sustains the planet. So when we talk about agricultural biodiversity here, we intend the diversity of crops, including the wild relatives, including trees, animals, but also microbes, and all the species that contribute to the production in agriculture. So there's a lot of diversity within an ecosystem. And we look at diversity from a species, but also from a genetic point of view. So our mission instead is to deliver the scientific evidence, but also management practices, policy options, in order to use and safeguard agriculture and tree biodiversity to attain sustainable uh, global food and also uh, nutrition security. So basically, we work with uh, partners in many different countries around the world, mostly low-income countries, where agriculture and tree biodiversity can actually contribute to improve nutrition, but also livelihoods, resilience, and also productivity, and help in adaptation to climate change. Usually, these uh, low-income countries are also the countries where we find most of the agricultural and tree biodiversity. Since December 2018, we have been uh, collaborating with another of these uh, centers, which is the Center for Tropical Agriculture, which is based in Cali in Colombia. And we have actually signed a memorandum of understanding to create an alliance. So the two organizations will actually be working together much more strongly because we have very similar agenda and very similar mandates. So we are actually going to complement the work of one institute with the other. So this is sort of a, a new future for us as well. So why is the work that we do important? Because we know that the global population is growing. We have predictions that say that by 2050, we will be 9 million people in the world or even more. And this means that we need to feed all these people and the food availability needs to actually expand. And this especially in developing countries. We're actually facing a lot of global challenges like the challenge to reduce global malnutrition, to adapt to climate change, but also to increase, as we said, productivity and reduce risk. And also to address shrinking food diversity which is happening all over the world, and reduce the negative impacts of agriculture production on natural ecosystems. And we think that production needs to focus on a diverse range of nutritious foods, which come from production systems that are highly biodiverse. We think that it's better to increase the production in these type of systems rather than increase the volume of the few staple grains that presently cover 50% of the world's energy intake. And these grains are rice, wheat, and maize. We're actually convinced that using and safeguarding agricultural and also tree biodiversity can help meet all these challenges. And also, we know that farm households and rural communities, which are the people we work with, have long since used agriculture and tree biodiversity to diversify their diets, to manage pests and disease, and also weather-related stress. The problem is that in the past, uh, policymakers and researchers have never considered these type of approaches as economically viable. 
research has never gone into this direction or very marginally. But recent scientific evidence that has demonstrated that actually agriculture and tree biodiversity used in combination with novel technology and also approaches can offer a lot in addressing all these challenges. It also brings increasing recognitions as a tool to achieve the, the global sustainable development goals, which we're all working towards. We work with agricultural biodiversity. So as I said, we promote small-scale production that is highly diverse. So not only diverse in number of species that are cultivated, but it could be also diverse in the number of varieties of the same species. For example, we work a lot with the farmers in Africa who cultivate beans. And what we have seen is that cultivating on the same field, different varieties of beans can actually reduce the impact of pests and diseases on the production systems. So we are actually promoting genetically diverse systems because they are actually much more adapted to climate change because they have a lot of more variety and there's great opportunity for some varieties to perform well in different environmental conditions. We work a lot also with university and research institutes in these countries. We also work in preparing university curricula on agrobiodiversity. For example, we have a big program on the so-called neglected and underutilized species, which millet is one of these species. What we have done in the projects working with these species is actually to show what are the advantages for the farmers to cultivate these species, because they are actually proven to be more adapted to marginal environments. For example, in India, we have been working with minor millets, and some areas of India are really facing a lot of heat and drought problems. And we, we have seen that some of these minor millets are really adapted to these environments. They can thrive under low input and stressful growing conditions that usually limit the productivity of uh, staple crops. And they're also highly nutritious. So they can actually contribute to healthier diets. And they also have a lot of potential for development as novel consumer products, because we also engage with local private sectors and try to find ways to make these produce more attractive to young people, but also to adults, creating new recipes and way of presenting millets, for example, in cookies or, or other plates. And also, it is important to conserve these neglected and underutilized species because they are also linked with the local culture and traditions. We know that by strengthening the conservation and the use of these species, we are also strengthening local identities and we are also contributing to empower marginalized communities. We have a, a program on uh, specifically on gender and trying to see the different roles that uh, men and women play uh, within the agricultural sector, in, especially in these low-income countries. And we have actually seen that although women often are not included in decision-making, they actually play a very important role in managing farms. Women are usually engaged in cultivating the so-called home gardens, where they usually select uh, different varieties of uh, medicinal plants, but also condiments, which actually complement a lot for the health and also for the diets of the whole household. 
And women are also very much involved in uh, selecting seeds. So usually when uh, they have to choose the seeds that they would like to plant for the next season, women are uh, involved in this activity uh, because they're also the ones who usually have to prepare food. And so they know which type of uh, characteristics the different crops need to have. They know which beans cook in less time, which have a better taste, which are better for some dishes or others, or even the importance of uh, the varieties for specific traditions or rituals or festivals. So the role of women is very important in maintaining uh, this diversity within the households and also in ensuring more diversity in the nutrition of the household itself. Traditional knowledge and local knowledge is being lost all over the world because of globalization, because of modern technology and so on. So we work towards trying to conserve this local knowledge and making sure that it's transmitted to the younger generations. So we have programs working with school children. We have been working also on this because the situation in Syria is, is so dramatic and it's so terrible and it's really an extreme example of what can happen to people in war situation. They bring with themselves their culture and, and one thing they do not want to lose is their culinary habits. And especially when you're far away from your country, you seem to bond even further with your traditions and it can actually be a very positive thing. We also encourage communities to conserve, for example, biodiversity registries. They will keep a registry where they will note down all the diversity that is in their community, all the different traits that different crops have and what they're used for, how they are managed on farm. And this information is very important to keep at the community level and to make sure that it is then transmitted to the younger generations because we also seen big problem that is that sort of migration to cities. But not only agrobiodiversity registries is important to keep track of this knowledge. We also work with uh, seasonal calendars where communities themselves will list all the different products that they are available uh, during the different seasons in a year. And together with the name of the crop and the characteristics, there's also uh, a different information on how it's used, for example. And we also try to have community members, especially women, write their own recipe books. So we have worked a lot in Central Asia, producing booklets that report all the different recipes. We have done this also in Cuba, where we have all traditional recipes which are not known at all in the cities. So this is also a way to keep this knowledge alive. There are different networks that can be used to share information. Uh, I was thinking of one that is the platform for agrobiodiversity research, which is actually hosted here in Biodiversity International. And it is a network where anyone who is interested in agrobiodiversity can sort of link to and also put any type of information that they would like to share with other people. And it's actually a global network. So this could be a way to share information. Obviously, language can be a barrier. We tend to stick to English, French and, and Spanish, but uh, not even always we manage to do translations into French and Spanish. So language can be a barrier. But I think networks of this type can be a good solution. Also, if communities have access to Internet, because it's not always the case.
we did have a small program looking at gardens and the creation of, uh, of vegetable gardens in urban environments. A lot of times we are trying to link the rural sector with the urban one so that uh, uh, there is a sort of mechanism that products can flow directly from the agricultural sector to the cities. For example, in Cuba, there is a problem with the food supply, and that is basically linked to the fact that transport is very bad there, and farmers hardly ever have their means of transport, and they are connected to the government. So the government cooperatives are the, are the ones who go around the different farms to collect uh, the produce that they want. But not all the products are requested. So a lot of the fruit that is produced uh, for example, in the farms is then wasted because there's no market uh, with the government uh, cooperatives. Uh, so there, for example, we have worked together with the urban and suburban uh, program, which in Cuba is very strong, to try to create local markets that actually can be supplied directly uh, by the farmers. And it's working quite well because uh, people in the cities are actually very interested in getting fresh produce and also varieties that they're not used to have in the cities. In actual fact, I have a farm myself. So my husband is a farmer and we have an organic farm not very far from where I work. And we have seen changes in climate over a very short period of time. We have been cultivating for maybe 15 years. And recently, I mean, these last years, it's really very difficult to predict what's going to happen and to know when you have to plant your crops because uh, you might have a cold spell, you might have uh, a lot of rain like we've had this last May, or it may be very hot and dry. So, and the only way to overcome these problems is actually to have a bigger array of diversity where you can choose from. And so if you cultivate different types of tomatoes that are resistant to different biotic and abiotic stresses, then you might have a better chance of picking some of the tomatoes at the end of the season. So, I mean, this is the only way that we can actually go. And I would say that Italy, maybe we're very fond of our food. And so we still have quite a lot of uh, connection with the land and with the small agriculture, because there are a lot of small family farms uh, and a lot of young people are going back to, uh, to farming, maybe because it's difficult to find other jobs. A job that, that can, uh, with which you can actually survive, both because you can eat your own food, but also because there's quite a lot of requests for fresh uh, organic foods here in Italy, yes. Farmers in Europe, I would say, have to sort of differentiate their income sources. So it's not only farming, but usually it's also transformation of some of the products or even uh, uh, restaurants or educational plans with schools. So schools come to the farm, they actually do some experience, they do some work and the kids actually see where their food comes from. This is quite common. But I think, I mean, the, the market has just a certain amount of space and I don't think everyone can sort of go towards uh, agritourism. The market, at least here, is quite saturated at the moment, yes. This idea of diversification is what we also call resilience. And we have been working quite a lot on this, also with other partners around the world. And one of them was the Satoyama Initiative, which is an international partnership 
made up of a lot of different institutes uh, from all over the world who uh, have come together basically to work on uh, the so-called social ecological production landscapes or seascapes. Because the idea of uh, conserving nature without human beings is actually an idea that doesn't work anymore. We have seen that uh, all the ecosystems in the world have been altered in somehow by human beings. And a lot of these systems have co-evolved with human beings. So uh, they have been shaped by their activities, but they also have uh, withstand the, the test of time. So a lot of these systems are actually still producing and still sustaining the livelihoods of the people working on, uh, on these systems. What we have tried to do is to, to understand what has made these systems resilient over such a long period of time. And we have seen that resilience depends a lot, both from a social and ecological point of view, on diversification. The same definition of socio-ecological production landscape is, in fact, of a mosaic of different land uses and habitats. So, for example, villages, farmlands, grasslands, forests, pastoral lands and coasts that have been formed and maintained uh, through the interaction between people and nature in a sustainable way. We call them satoyama, we call them socio-ecological production landscapes. There are other programs that work with these type of systems, so at, at a landscape level. Resilience is actually linked to the capacity of these systems to adapt and to change to the changing conditions, but maintaining their sort of main functions and their main structure. To increase resilience, they need to maintain a lot of agricultural biodiversity. Local culture and knowledge is extremely important. That also diversification of farming income is increasingly important so that they don't depend only on one sector. And this can be done through ecotourism, it can be done through artisanal work or differentiating the sources of income through different types of activities that are still are sustainable for the environment. And this is why then in the end we developed a, a series of, of indicators, the resilience indicators that were actually developed to do this, to measure resilience within these systems. But these indicators are sort of a participatory approach. So they are mostly, I would say, qualitative, uh, more than quantitative indicators. And it's the communities themselves that assess the resilience of, of their own systems. Resilience to them might be different from what we see as resilient. They have their own worldviews, they have their own aspirations and you might see things in a different way. For example, one of the indicators that comes to my mind is that uh, we look at infrastructure within the landscape. And often, as a Westerner, we might think that they lack a lot of primary facilities that for us would be essential, like, for example, electric power. But some of these communities are actually interested in different things and electric power for them was not their primary concern. So it's interesting to use this approach because you actually have the, the communities themselves assess what they see as resilient in their system. And then they are able also to work on their landscape and try to improve the resilience through different type of activities. They look at conservation of agrobiodiversity, they look at culture, they look at gender issues, they look at social issues, they look at uh, governance of the systems. 
and also traditional foods if these are conserved within the system and the source of food to these communities. So resilience is the capacity to learn and adapt to the changes. So a system is resilient not when it stays in its own status for a long period of time. It's not conserving a museum, for example, but we're talking about dynamic systems that change over time. But the capacity to learn and adapt for changes and the base has to be a rich system in biodiversity, wild and natural biodiversity. Governance is important within the systems. Culture needs to be something that we, we try to conserve. At the same time, if technology is useful in these situations, it's, it's a good thing. Equity, participation are absolutely fundamental. Yes. My name is Ritu Sogani, and I have been living in the uh, in the hills in the state of Uttarakhand in India for the last 20 years, and I have been working very closely with the grassroots community, especially women and the marginalized community, on the issue of traditional knowledge systems and practices. The work primarily is about how to protect and conserve the traditional knowledge systems and practices which exist in the area of agriculture, forest water, natural resources, how to strengthen the knowledge system and how to promote the knowledge system as one of the important base of livelihood of people here. When we talk of traditional knowledge, then what we mean is the knowledge that people have been accumulating, have been experiencing, have been observing for centuries together, actually. It's an oral tradition, you know, which has been handed down the generation from the one generation to another orally. It's not documented. It's not coded. For example, how to grow agriculture in very hilly area, which is around 1500 meters or 1500 meters to 1700 meters. The kind of soil that we have here, how to use that soil in growing different kind of crops, how to manage the forest sustainably. But at the same time, also use it in such a way that we have it for the generations later on. That knowledge that people have is something that they have heard their parents or their grandparents speak about. In other words, it's just common sense. When I started working in the hills in 1998, I had absolutely no idea of what the situation is as far as the local knowledge in the hills is concerned. I had no idea how it is connected with women and men. It's the women actually in the hills who has been very closely connected with the natural resources, be it forest, be it agriculture, be it livestock management, be it even health-related practices governed by food items and herbs. The roles and responsibilities of women are such that they stay in the house and they carry out all the activities close to the house, you know, which are connected with natural resources. So agriculture in the hills is not just connected with land. Or it's not just connected, you know, with growing crops. It's very closely connected with forest, very closely connected with, of course, water, very closely connected with livestock. So she is the one who is very closely connected with all these sectors. And she is the one who is interacting with them on day-to-day -day basis. 
she knows what rose where what leaf should be used if the goat actually has indigestion or how the compost needs to be prepared and how those leaves can be used for the preparation of compost so she is the one who has been interacting with all these areas and so she has the knowledge and she has the skill first hand knowledge and first hand knowledge systems and practices in these sectors men definitely they are also contributing in agriculture but only in couple of activities but of course this is a general picture but men mostly prefer to um, work outside in the villages or outside they migrate to the towns or sometimes they even migrate to the main towns like delhi bombay and other places to bring in money in fact the hill economy is also called the money order economy where the money actually comes in through this money order or through the check and many people in the hills have also joined army so it's the women who has been associated with agriculture and related areas one of the research institutions came out with this figure of 98.5% 98.5% of the work relating to agriculture is being carried out by women I asked this question from one of the women as to how do you describe health the word health she gave me such a beautiful and different answer she said the animal that you see there is so important that is also health the kind of crop that we are growing and the method we are using that is also connected with health the water that we are using that is also connected with health what i am eating and how i am eating is also connected with my emotional health so she said it's so difficult to describe health all the things around me are contributing to health and the air that i am breathing in you know that is also part of health the forest is responsible the trees are responsible so she described health in such a integrated and holistic way that was my first lesson actually I mean, if you ask this question from any doctor or any person in the urban area, he would he or she would say absence of illness. I don't have any illness. How compartmentalized our approach has become, you know, in comparison to how people think. And when it comes to women, we have to work at various levels. It's not just at the grassroots level, but we have to work at uh, various policy-making levels. Even the grassroots level is very important. There, women are not able to make their voices heard, even in the local self-governance bodies, because of the kind of roles and responsibilities they have. They don't have time. They are not supposed to be seen in those decision-making forums and processes because it's believed that they are not supposed to be here. They are supposed to be doing their household chores. so that kind of mindset actually has to change and gender sensitization has to come about at all levels also at the household level it's not something which which is very easy but it's happening now last year we had a, a meeting at the state level in which we had invited the government officials of not just our state but of the nearby states also and there were several organizations the forest department was also there agricultural department was also there I was so happy to see Parvati, who is a wonderful farmer, extremely knowledgeable, head person of her forest committee, standing there in front of everybody and telling people, "We want traditional crops. We will grow only traditional crops. We will not use any of the chemical fertilizers that you people are promoting. 
because of these 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 reasons one of the other issues which i have not mentioned actually right now but which is very closely connected with the women farmers they are doing majority of the work related to farming they are actually not known as farmers they are not recognized legally administratively and even socially as farmers simply because they don't have land in their name it's really sad it's very really sad and very ironical i would say if you take into consideration nepal india and thailand not even 17% of the total land holdings actually be- belong to women and these are the areas where women contribute maximum to the agricultural economy there is still such a tough battle going on because the land does not get inherited by women but it has very serious implications on her work on her capabilities on her capacity building on her skills because she is not recognized as farmers it's only men who are being invited to the workshops by the government women don't have access to credit they don't have access to the government the first thing they ask for is to have the land title in your name and with increasing migration and reduced access to resources condition of women and the situation of women actually has worsened over the years i would say we have a big network which is called mahila adhikar manch that is women farmers rights and we are doing everything possible act to influence the government to change the land inheritance rules to include women which will take many many years because land is a very important source of power but at the same time at least recognize them as cultivators at least recognize them as cultivators at least give them the right to be able to access the bank and access the credit whenever they want to access the government schemes the government scheme should not be asking only for the land title but they should be asking the name of the cultivators i think it's very much possible this is making the life of women very difficult and it has made the situation worse actually over the years because with decision making vested in absent male it becomes so difficult to take very important decisions at the right time work relating to agriculture continues to be done by women but without any decision making power it, it becomes difficult for her you know to carry it on further very frustrating very frustrating one of the women from our area she had gone to the bank and she was just filling up one form i think she was opening her account and there was this column which said what is your profession she wrote farmer and the bank official refused to accept it he said you are not a farmer you are a housewife she had the understanding she had the awareness and also some confidence and she was with other women also there she said she said i am a farmer you have to put down my name because i am the farmer i am the one who is tilling the land i am the one who is cutting i am the one who is weeding i am the one who is harvesting how can you not call me a farmer i'll not delete the word farmer i will continue to use the word farmer you can't change it and finally he had to accept it he had to accept it because he did accept it she was just opening a bank account the gender sensitization hasn't taken place at that level also that's why i'm saying administratively she is not recognized as farmers she is still considered to be somebody who is carrying out all the only the household chores her unpaid work be it productive or be it reproductive or be it caring responsibility is not being recognized is not visible is not being acknowledged here widows get the right 
to lend title once their husbands pass away you know and parvati also mentioned this you know in that meeting in the keynote speak, uh, speech she said as long as our husband alive you know we have no right over land he when he dies when he passes away only then we are allowed to have the right over land it hit them really hard even the the rule which is in favor of women in actual reality they are not recognized not just legally but also administratively it's the structural change which we need to bring about it's just that it's the system actually which is which responsible for this state of affairs i would connect it to globalization the biggest network working globally on climate change climate development knowledge network made a film on these women who were part of our group and the title of the film i think is missing women in decision making and these very women video recorded themselves as to what work they are doing how they are doing how it is connected with climate change how it is actually helping them mitigate how it is helping them adapt themselves women with me have gone to malaysia in malaysia they have spoken about these very things they have shared their experiences their opinion their needs their priorities everything we have such a myopic way of looking at things interconnectedness you know with nature this is what interconnectedness is i mean it's not about just interdependence it's also about cooperation people are interdependent but more than interdependence there is this cooperation amongst these 10 villages of the micro watershed around these sectors traditional knowledge is not just about techniques it's not just about practices it's about a very integrated interconnected interdependent system you know which runs through people's cooperation which again actually is on the decline the social cohesion the value of uh, reciprocity you know the value of the equilibrium all these values they were very very integral part of our traditional system or way of life and all these values they make people so resilient social cohesion was such an important aspect of people's lives especially those who are more marginalized like for example we have a practice in the hills called palta p a l t a which means that people contribute in each other's labor people from not just my household would contribute but people from the other households in my village would contribute as well as from other villages also and the same would happen i would go and contribute my whole day my the entire day you know in carrying out that activity and this would help mostly those people single women women whose husbands or whose uh, the men folks have migrated or they are not they are not there so resilience the social cohesion and all these values actually increase people's resilience i think one of the important things that we have to do is to to have our resources to have belief in our resources and to strengthen the existing biological diversity and the cultural diversity whatever little remains of it it's not that it's it's impossible because i have worked in certain areas in the hills for the last 10 years 12 years and people have changed i mean they have brought about changes in their food diet they have brought about changes in their agricultural system and we are not going to those areas anymore the experience that they have already you know and the Uh, awareness that they have is enough actually to last for a very long time and also it it will get transferred to their children
they are also going cash crop, but at the same time they are also going finger miller. They are growing. They are also buying things from the market, but at the same time they have their agriculture to fall back on. Biodiversity-based ecological farming, mixed cropping system done organically, they can also produce much more, not just equivalent to chemical-intensive farming. This is one great disbelief that people have. The governments have that chemical-intensive farming can feed the mouth of the increasing population, and organic farming can't. This is all wrong, actually, and so many studies are there, you know, to prove it. Otherwise. i would not call it organic farming but biodiversity based ecological farming in balance with the nature or because organic farming can also promote monocropping which is happening actually organic farming is just one component of biodiversity based ecological farming when it comes to chemical intensive farming of course the adverse impacts is are quite well known and even the government of uttarakhand and other state governments are not promoting chemical intensive farming anymore but they are promoting organic farming we are talking about biodiversity also you know in the farming and the ecological farming keeping in balance you know with the ecology the with the surrounding ecology which is most important organic farming can also promote monocropping organic farming only talks about cropping system which is minus chemicals minus synthetic fertilizers and pesticides that is one important component of the farming system that we are talking about but we are also talking about mixed cropping system which would take care of the health of not just the soil but also of course take care of the health of the livestock and also take care of the health of the human beings because it will ensure availability and access to food and nutrition at all times of the year we have a practice of growing nine different kinds of crops in one single field during the rainy season and these different crops are about grains spices oil seeds different pulses all these nine different kinds of crops would grow in one single field in one single season and it will get harvested of course at different times of the of the year but it will ensure availability of some food you know in the household at any time of the year now the studies have also proved that biodiversity based ecological farming or mixed cropping system done organically will take care of not just the production but also of the health aspect and we have the studies and we have the data which can prove you know that their production can be higher than the production of monocropping done just just next to that field the amount of nutrition which is coming out of that one acre of land will be much more in comparison to the monocropping which is growing just next to that field one acre of land in one year is able to absorb 2000 pounds of carbon in a year where we are doing mixed cropping organically in comparison to chemical intensive farming which actually releases 300 pounds of carbon per acre per year considering the global warming which is taking place it's very very important to also come up with ways for mitigation mitigating strategies are much more important and unfortunately nobody talks about it because it is connected with again you know big seed corporations it is connected again with fertilizer companies and nobody is interested in mitigation right now nobody is talking about agriculture which is a very big contributor of 
carbon emission but can be a very important strategy to sequester the carbon prevent it from emitting and also absorb the carbon which is there in the atmosphere agriculture done this way mixed cropping done organically is considered to be the only way through which we can do carbon sequestration at a very fast rate this is in total contrast to the policies of the government which is totally about monoculture growing only pine trees in the forest area and also promoting monocropping i think we have to have a very multi pronged approach you know where statistics are also important in certain areas you know case studies are equally important the village women i had been working with constantly since 2001 they already had an awareness they had some difficulty to convince the men folks actually at the household level but gradually we interacted with the men folk also and they also started coming to our meeting we made them interact with few people who have never switched over to chemical intensive farming and make them hear their experiences we did workshops with them we showed them video films we showed them many educational documentaries we took them on, on educational trips to some people renowned people who have been working on saving seeds for many many years made them interact with other groups also working on these issues we took a walk actually for 5 days through different parts of uttarakhand and they interacted with different communities they exchanged you know their experiences and gradually they finally got the confidence to do what all of us had been talking about they shifted from chemical intensive farming to gradually organic farming and to monocropping to mixed cropping so they have become kind of leaders actually in own way the government of uttarakhand declared itself organic many 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 years ago it has not created any market where farmers can actually sell their organic produce that's a big challenge still it's not that they have no idea it's not that they have no awareness they know that the middle person actually they take away major chunk of profit you know and the farmers are not able to reach the market but at the same time in parallel there are women's federations and they are selling them now in the market and do value addition packaging labeling everything and then sell through different outlets they are also catering to the urban taste you know by having finger millet cake or finger millet biscuits over the last 2 3 years uh, their children have started preferring these local produced rather than things that they were used to eating from outside the civil society is quite strong and the women's groups are also very strong so self reliance self confidence and self esteem these are all connected so we can't say that everything in the name of knowledge which we have inherited which has come down the generations is good and very effective some of the things are not very effective maybe because the situation has changed now so a good amalgamation a very balanced amalgamation of local knowledge with the new knowledge also needs to be done from time to time you know to address people's emerging needs and requirements who is controlling the knowledge the point of control there has been a gradual dependence of people on the market self reliance self sustenance has been replaced with total dependence and that actually has an impact on the self confidence and self esteem of people when we talk of local knowledge and the replacement of local knowledge people lose out on their self confidence their self esteem and self reliance 
you should be looking like us it could be a institution it could be a country it could be a civilization could be a region it could be a particular section of community it could be market any particular section in the market and it could be even advertising agency who wants you to look like people they are advertising we lose identity we lose our dress we lose our language we lose our food we lose our systems we lose our knowledge we lose our practices and we lose ourselves completely lose autonomy lose our autonomy lose our freedom Thank you for listening to this episode of Nordic by Nature on knowledge. You can find more information on our guests and a transcript of this podcast on imaginarylife.net/podcast. You can contact Nadia Bagamini via biodiversityinternational.org. Ritu Sugani would like to thank the women of Chakdala and Chama Chopra in the Birapani area in Nanital district. She would also like to thank the women in Telagena in Nanital district and the women in the Tola area of Almora district. For more information on the guests please see imaginarylife.net/podcast. The music and sound has been arranged by Diego Losa. You can find Diego on diegolosa.blogspot.com. If you are interested in nature-centered mindfulness, please see foundnature.org to read about RJ Rostogi and the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature in India. You can follow the foundation on Facebook and on Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag Traces of North and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast, so please don't hesitate to email me Tanya on nordicbynature@gmail.com.